0: Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host Caleb Franz, this is the voice of liberty for a new generation. Welcome, welcome, I am thrilled to have you here today. Today is going to be a really fun episode, um, <laughs> probably one of the most fun episodes um, that we have done because... Uh, as you know, or at least I would, I would hope you would know. Some of you might be getting out of school on Monday or getting off of work. Monday is President's Day, and President's Day was always one of my uh, one of my most favorite holidays growing up. Um, because growing up, I wasn't exactly libertarian, and uh, and I always enjoyed learning about presidents. I always enjoyed. Um, I always enjoyed studying about them and when i became a libertarian it became one of my favorite holidays for a completely different reason uh than when i than when i was growing up because now i just get to roast all of the different presidents because everyone that you are supposed to like uh growing up and you're taught in school that you're supposed to like this president and this president because he did such great things for the country in reality that these presidents were all just horrible, horrible, horrible people. Um, So, in honor of Presidents Day in a true libertarian fashion, we are going to take and break down what one of those presidents have done. Excuse me. We are going to take and break down um, one of the presidents that I think a lot of people have a lot of respect for and uh, a lot of people really like and think that this guy has, has done a tremendous amount of good for the country and completely just debunk all of those myths surrounding his legacy and let you decide was this guy actually that great of a, of a of a president? Because I don't think he was. I actually think he was one of the worst in American history. And as you can tell from the title of this episode, that president is, of course, Theodore Roosevelt. The reason I am choosing Theodore Roosevelt, for a little bit of uh, a, a preface here, the reason I chose Theodore Roosevelt for this episode is because I could do some low-hanging fruit like FDR, or Woodrow Wilson, who uh, is my most despised <laughs> president. Um, there's there's certainly plenty of subject matter on Wilson and FDR as well. But that's really easy fruit for right of center, for conservatives, um, and even for libertarians, whenever you get into somebody like Lincoln, who would be seemingly a prime candidate to kind of dissect and debunk a a few things about him, Um, I want to do Theodore Roosevelt because he's pretty well beloved by everyone, but not quite the way that Lincoln is, whereas Lincoln is much more well known in his accomplishments and what he did. Uh, Teddy, on the other hand, conservatives and liberals love him, but his legacy is a little bit more murky. Than than Lincolns is So I want to get into Teddy Roosevelt's legacy This guy was no conservative He was no small government conservative He was A wild wild progressive Massive big government Imperialist Progressive Who Expanded the size of the executive branch To largest it has ever been During peacetime like I said, Lincoln uh, was is the exception for prior, but um, he was during the Civil War. So during peacetime, no other president has had quite the impact on on the size and scope of government the way that he did dramatically. Really, both of the Roosevelt's have had quite... A similar legacy in, in that sense Teddy Roosevelt hated hated small government in any way shape and form and transformed the role of the executive branch in peacetime much more than anyone before him now we are going to review several different aspects of his life and his uh, certain policies that a lot of people tout and a lot of people look at as positives um, but there are so many things that I wanted to get into that we quite honestly just don't have the time to get into um, because I want to cover so many uh, things of his life that I'm going to cover them in certain other aspects. For example, I wanted to touch on national parks and, and, uh, and what he did with, with land, um, but we're just not going have to the, have the time to get into to that aspect of his presidency and of his life. Uh, But we are going to touch on it whenever because we have an environmental episode, uh, you know, a little bit of a preview for you. We have an environmental episode coming up um, closer to Earth Day that we will be touching on what Teddy Roosevelt did to the national parks as well as free market solutions and yada yada. So um, with that being said. Let's get into a little bit about how Teddy Roosevelt became Teddy Roosevelt. How, how the Bull Moose became known for, for the tough guy, the badass, the guy who was larger than life, a bigger than, than life personality. First of all, the signs of his time, he, of course, as, as, uh, as you should know, grew up in a post-Civil War Era. He grew up in a time where unionism was very popular. The era was an era of great divide, and since he grew up in the North, uh, obviously a strong central government was a very popular notion among uh, among everyone who who was in politics at that time. Uh, he also grew up a very sickly and frail. Child, this this motivated Roosevelt to become a uh, uh, tougher and to and to strengthen himself. Unfortunately, instead of keeping this sort of spirit of individuality, he used this and it translated into a control mindset. This is something that is not uncommon. People who, I mean, really, this kind of happened with both Roosevelts because with Teddy, it was it was in his later life and. Uh, with, with Franklin, it w- or excuse me, flip that. With Teddy, it was in his earlier life, and it was, with Franklin, it was in his, his later life. But, but, but between the times that, that Roosevelt grew up in, where Unionism was very popular, Jefferson was being rejected. All up until the Civil War, Jefferson was a very popular figure. But after the Civil War, Jefferson had never been more disliked by the rest of the country, especially, especially in the North they saw Jefferson and they saw the views that he espoused as pro-slavery, pro-secession. Um, it's It was the cause, the reason behind the Civil War, and that's something that is a completely different topic that we just, we just cannot get into uh, right now. But that was the mindset that everybody had at the time. So the ideas that Jefferson put into place, everyone was rejecting at this time because of the aftermath of the Civil War because we were in this construct uh, reconstruction period with that coupled with with his upbringings and and uh, his physical uh, state of being uh, Roosevelt was shaped into becoming a man that was in very much large favor of of overpowered executive authority and federal authority this helped him become an increasingly authoritarian president, probably the most authoritarian president that the United States had ever seen, with the exception of uh, of during the Civil War. So what were a few of those a few of those things that Roosevelt acted on that proved himself to be very authoritarian, proved himself not to be in any way shape or form conservative on well, The most obvious that I would point to is his nickname as the trust buster, the famous uh, trust buster. This actually translated for Roosevelt into being highly, highly anti-capitalistic. He hated the free market. He loathed the free market. He did not trust people with their own money and their own wealth, at least not without his oversight. He redefined what was the proper role for the federal government in his New Nationalism speech. This outlined his twisted and certainly not laissez faire vision for America. In it, this is I think this is incredible because if you're a conservative who who likes this guy, and keep in mind this is who I, I'm initially speaking to in this episode. If you're a conservative who likes this guy, tell me how free enterprise this statement is. We grudge no man fortune and civil life if it is honorably attained and well spent. It is not even enough that it should be gained without doing damage to the community. We should only permit it to be gained only so long as the gaining represents the benefit to the community." That sounds like something Bernie Sanders would say in a stump speech. But here it is. Theodore Roosevelt, conservative extraordinaire, or so so many people believe, completely slamming the free market. Because he did not believe that you should do what you want with your own property. This is a fundamental flaw in his ideology and, and really his way of thinking. There's so much to take apart in this statement alone. First of all, this completely misunderstands how the market works. He thinks he can um, decide what is best for the community. He doesn't understand, he, for some reason, he thinks that, that uh, entrepreneurs and, and rich people, they just hoard their money in this statement. That is not at all the case. Certainly, certainly not in this time. If somebody is wealthy and somebody is well off, they did not get there by hoarding their finances. It's impossible. That is not how rich people acquire wealth. And he thinks that he knows what is best for the community, not the market, not the people, not free enterprise, but Theodore Roosevelt. And he wants to use the government to enforce what he thinks is best for the community. This was translated uh, later, in, or uh, excuse me, earlier, into, uh, into what he did as president. This story actually begins in, in 1890 uh, when the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed and it went into law. Uh, it was meant to protect the consumer and save competition. This, in fact, was the opposite. We've all heard this story. We all grew up in grade school, especially if you went to a public school. You all uh, heard this story about how the Sherman Antitrust Act saved capitalism. It saved competition. It protected the consumer from these gigantic corporations from acquiring too much power and too much wealth and uh, abusing uh, the, the good nature of the consumer and smaller businesses. Is this actually the case of course you can probably assume that it's not the ironic thing is is that the consumer actually did not want this act at all (laughs) very very few consumers were the ones who were actually asking for the government to step in and do something about quote monopolies at that time in fact now, this may be surprising to you if, if this is the first time ever hearing it, but if uh, you know how the free market works, this shouldn't be, or if you know how, how government works, I should say, this should not be surprising at all. It was not the consumers who were lobbying the government to pass the Antitrust Act, to, to break up monopolies. It wasn't that at all. It was, in fact, the biggest advocates were small and more local monopolies who had control of entire regions and couldn't keep up with the larger competition who was at that time expanding drastically and becoming uh, uh, chain uh, uh, franchises. Many of, many of these bigger uh, lobbyists were farmers and merchants. The biggest uh, companies weren't increasing prices, even though that's what they wanted you to believe whenever whenever these these uh, these in- industries the competition essentially the competition was lobbying government to to keep these larger uh, corporations and these larger companies from expanding driving down prices because they couldn't keep up. So instead of in a free market it's ironic because people say that that the Sherman Antitrust Act and, and so many acts that that followed it was saving competition. It actually killed it, because this is what competition does. When you aren't the best man in the game, you lose. You wither away, or you get absorbed into the larger competition. That's what was happening, and the competition didn't like it. You see, we have this uh, narrow mindset today, from only look at looking at things from our perspective, where the local. Uh, the local businesses are the little guy who, who, uh, who is fighting against the greater trend of the larger corporations. This wasn't the case back in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. In that time frame, the smaller businesses who were well off in their own community, they were the true monopolists. Of that time except it didn't expand over the entire country expanded over an entire region because it was much harder to get goods and resources and for companies to branch out into other regions so if you had a well-established uh, company in your region don't expect for somebody to to rise up and and you're in a competition to rise up in your own region um, and defeat you that just wasn't going to happen they had a lock hold The only way it could happen is by these larger companies who came in and started these chains and started expanding beyond their own region. And that is what was breaking up the monopolies. These local monopolies hated that. They hated that. They feared for their own existence, as they should. But instead of just becoming more efficient or or cheapening their prices, they lobbied the government. A perfect example of this. I'm gonna be referencing a few books for this episode, uh, that is kind of required reading. The perfect example of this is with the Chicago Meat Packers, and I'm going to read a section out of uh, "Bully Boy," which is a great, great book that I'm reading currently. On the truth about it's, it's called "Bully Boy." It's by Jim Powell, Powell, and uh, it's the truth about. Teddy Roosevelt's legacy, and in this example, this is uh, a section about what we're talking about right now. In this example, he says the Chicago Meat Packers encountered tough resistance as they tried to expand into local markets. According to Stuart uh, Brutchy, from the beginning, Swift had to contend with prejudice against eating meat killed more than a thousand miles away. In many weeks earlier, he did so by advertising. He also had to combat uh, boycotts of local butchers and the concentrated efforts of the National Butcher's Protective Association to prevent the sale of his meat in local markets. The association was confident it could do this by inducing various state legislatures to pass a law prohibiting the sale of dressed beef, mutton, or pork unless it had been expected by state officials 24 hours before slaughter. The requirement would effectively banish the big four. All but the Chicago market. In 1884, the association persuaded lawmakers in Minnesota, Indiana, and Colorado to enact such a law. That is true protectionism. That is uh, is what kept monopolies in power. It was not the larger companies and the larger corporations. Now, I'm going to reference you, again, um, back to uh, an episode we did a few weeks ago, because I don't want to spend too much time on this in and of itself. I'm going to reference you to uh, episode 65, Liberty episode 65, uh, for, more, for more on Monopolies, because we did an entire show on this just a couple weeks ago. But Teddy Roosevelt didn't seem to care that that it was the local monopolies that had all the power not these big giant corporations he also didn't seem to care that these big giant corporations were lowering the prices not increasing them as we're told that that's the way monopolies work they have control and then they they increase all the prices instead he acted very irrationally and and spontaneously rather than um rather than with his his good senses and logic which is something that he did quite often, mind you, during his presidency. This is uh, one, of, one of the things that he did um, while president, was he read the, the book The Jungle, which was a work of fiction, and he based many of his food regulations off of that, even though none of the things in that book actually happened. But that's for another time. Um, the result of his economic illiteracy was providing more power to local monopolies that actually did hurt the consumer rather than letting the free market lower prices for everyone. When he weaponized the Sherman Antitrust Act as president, he didn't seem to really care about the fact that that prices were being lowered. He only cared about, one, what he thought was right, not what the facts showed, and two, the power that he was accumulating. You can say, you can you can debate the merits of whether or not you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, but do not tell me that this is a small, limited government thing that he did. This is the furthest thing from it. If you are a conservative who cares about free markets, limited government, um, and individual responsibility, this alone should cross off all the boxes to say, okay, maybe Teddy Roosevelt isn't the small government conservative that we thought he was? But there's so much more that we have to get into. Next, we're going to go overseas into uh, his imperialism and his ideology that there is no bad war. Now, for neocons and and for many of those uh, who who just love the ideas of war, this would be you know phenomenal. This would be. Yeah, they probably would love this about him. But for anyone who actually believes in the Constitution and the original intent of the Founding Fathers, this is a grave, grave stain on his legacy. Teddy's imperialism not only undermined the role of the American military and, and, and corrupted it, honestly, but it dramatically expanded the power of the executive and undermined Congress as well. Roosevelt saw war as a thing of glory and a rite of passage for every generation, not a, last, uh, not a last resort of government force, which is what it actually is. In 1897, Roosevelt gave a speech uh, commenting on war, and it showed his, his true desires behind what he thought of it. He said, All the great masterful races have been fighting races. No triumph of peace is quite so great as the supreme triumph of war. The supreme triumph of war? That's what he thought of of people having their lives and their liberty destroyed. That's what he thought of having countries decimated, having economies wrecked, having families torn apart. He didn't see war as something of last resort. He saw it as a, a thing where he can bathe himself in glorious, glorious uh, uh, battle. It was for the glory of the collective nation is what he thought. Now, I want to go into a couple different aspects of this. I, I even had to cut one of them back just because of uh, how limited we are. On time with the amount of material that I have to go through. Um, but the first thing is actually, before he was president during the Spanish American War, during this time, uh, Roosevelt was the Secretary of the Navy. And uh, obviously not the president, uh, because this was, this was before that time. But even as Secretary of Navy and not the president, he was the one who ensured that the war was going to go his way. In the Spanish-American War, uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines were all Spanish colonies. Roosevelt wanted them uh, to expand on the ever-growing empire that was the United States. So he tried to take them. Then, or at least he, uh, he he orchestrated a plan about taking them in case war was to ever break out between the United States and, and Spain. Then his opportunity arrived. The one thing you should know about progressives is that they never, never waste an opportunity. I'm not in the camp that a lot of conspiracy theorists are like Bush did 9-11, and and, and even Roosevelt uh, planned uh, Pearl Harbor and all these different things. That misunderstands what progressives are about. Progressives don't orchestrate these things happening. They just wait. They're very, very patient. They wait for a long time, and then as soon as they see something happens, they seize the opportunity. This is exactly what happened here. The... Uh, once the USS Maine was uh, was attacked and, and sank off the coast of Havana, Cuba, Roosevelt blamed Spain, despite the fact that there was absolutely no evidence to support this. He said the Maine was sunk by an act of dirty treachery on the part of the Spaniards. Now, where was his evidence? Like I said, there was none. But this didn't matter. The facts in 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 his case, hardly ever matter when it comes to doing the things that he wants to do. This was the prime reason we went to war with Cuba, even though we said it was about Cuban independence. That was our excuse, much like uh, when, whenever we do an episode on Woodrow Wilson, we'll see the, the real reason behind uh, behind entering into World War I. Um, but this was kind of a precursor to that. He said that that was the reason, uh, even though it was it was really because Teddy Roosevelt wanted he was urging, urging for the opportunity to get into war, and that opportunity arose when the United States declared war uh, on Spain in Cuba on April twenty fifth, eighteen ninety eight. Now Teddy and his and his Rough Riders, this is where the Rough Riders came into play. Teddy and his Rough Riders did help win this war. That's that's uh, without question. However, what came after it is what's really the shocking part of the matter. As if, you know, lying about who, who sunk the main uh, isn't shocking enough. While it was supposedly about Cuban, Cuban independence, like I like I said, Cuba was actually not allowed a seat at the table and ended with American uh, excuse me, with America acquiring Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam, as well as Cuba, but that was uh, reversed. The Cuba part was reversed uh, a few years later. These, this was this was a part of Teddy Roosevelt's war plans um, before the war even broke out when he was Secretary of Navy. Now, the next thing I want to get into is is after exploring what he thought of war and how he was just itching for a war any kind of war any sort of opportunity to jump in and bathe himself in glory the next part is that was kind of the first staple of the change of american foreign policy the next one is how we became global a global police force and this is with the roosevelt corollary to the monroe doctrine so what happened here was uh, shortly after the Spanish-American War, obviously Theodore Roosevelt became president um, and quickly began changing American foreign policy as we know it. For as long as, as we had been a country, America did not intervene in the affairs of, the, of other nations. The this, this Spanish-American War was kind of a, a precursor to, to what was to come in the Roosevelt corollary, in the Roosevelt corollary. The Monroe Doctrine was to help ensure Europe doesn't try to colonize Latin America. This was meant to ensure Europe uh, didn't become too aggressive. Not for the U.S. to be involved in Latin America affairs. Well, Roosevelt had to change this, of course, because he saw America's role as something much greater than just national defense the role of the American military, that is to say. Um, with that being said, Venezuela, uh, around this time, during Amer- during Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, uh, began faulting on uh, its debts to Europe uh, during this time. Teddy Roosevelt worked uh, on enforcing and warned about enforcing uh, the Monroe Doctrine if they didn't back down after after sending a blockade around Venezuela. Many, many European countries did this. And um, to his credit, that's exactly what they did without, without getting too far into their affairs, even though he was itching for the opportunity. Well, that all changed in 1904 when Teddy added the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. At this point on, the U.S. would now intervene in the affairs of Latin America in the case of quote flagrant and chronic wrongdoing by Latin American neighbors in 1905. This was when he when he took his first opportunity within the Dominican Republic that was when he took control after a very similar situation had brewed in the Dominican Republic as what happened in Venezuela to ensure this wouldn't happen again He took control and seized control of the finances in the Dominican Republic. This was the beginning of when um, the United States would cease to act only in affairs when it affected national security interests and began to police uh, neighbors all across the world. Now, I was going to do a section here on on the Panama Canal as well about We simply don't have enough time for that, so I am going to do that on another episode on a later date. I'm not sure where I'm going to place that in quite yet. I might even make a part two to this, I don't know. Um, But I want to move on to the next chapter, and that is probably the darkest part of Roosevelt's legacy. And that is what Roosevelt thought of, quote, the lesser races. We touched on this before in, in previous episodes, but only very, very lightly. Roosevelt wasn't just a man of his time. A lot of people will say, and, and sometimes I will say this, it, it just depends on the person. It depends on the situation. A lot of people will just say this about anybody who has any sort of racist strain whatsoever if they like them. Or just say, oh, that, that was just a, a, a sign of his time. He was just a, a man of his time because that's what everyone said or that's what everyone did. No, no, no. This isn't the case for Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a racist then as he would have been now. Um, Roosevelt, back in, back, uh, in his day said, someday we will realize that the prime duty of a good citizen of the right type is to leave his blood behind him in the world, and that we have no business to perpetrate citizens of the wrong type. Well, this is a little revealing, but it actually gets much deeper than this. Roosevelt not only uh, thought some races were lesser or quote, the wrong type of blood. He also believed that we should try everything in our power to keep the Anglo-Saxon race on the top. He believed very, very deeply um, in eugenics, and this is, we we have done an episode on eugenics before back in October, um, but I just think this is incredibly damning. In a speech to the National Congress of Mothers in 1905, He said a race that practiced such a doctrine, that is to say a race that practiced racial suicide, would thereby conclusively show that it was unfit to exist and that it had better give place to people who had not forgotten the primary laws of their being. And for some clarification, racial suicide is the belief that um, a race would eventually be essentially bred out of existence by lower races this is one of his beefs about capitalism because he saw capitalism as sort of a great equalizer which he's he's kind of right about that honestly um but he saw that capitalism was a great equalizer in that it would give opportunity to the lower races to rise up and pick themselves out of their squalor because of um, because of the the ability for for anyone to make something of themselves, um, and this was a threat to the the Anglo-Saxon race at the top. He was also friends with uh, a interesting to say the least interesting fellow named Madison Grant. Now we have discussed him. This section may be a little repetitive if you recall our. Uh, episode on early American progressivism back in um, back in October for our horrors of collectivism series. Uh, he was a friend of a, a fellow named Madison Grant, who was a leader, an academic leader, of the eugenics movement, and he was the author of the book, The Passing of the Great Race. Now, as I have said in in uh, the prior episode, this book was filled with hate and propaganda about racism and white supremacy. It was a book that, in fact, influenced Adolf Hitler, who he called, uh, Hitler that is, uh, called his Bible. He called this book that Madison Grant wrote his Bible. Roosevelt also thought very, very fondly of this book, calling it a capital book in purpose, vision, and grasp of the facts. Now, if you want to know more about this uh, subject, this very dark uh, uh, portion of Roosevelt's life, we we do touch on this and uh, progressivism as a whole, the racist roots of progressivism as a whole. on episode 53, you can go back and, and listen to episode 53 of Liberty as we as we talk about this. Now, finally, I want to begin to start to close out with Roosevelt's um, creation of a new party after he uh, stepped down after a second term as a Republican for president. Taft was in between, and then he ran again uh, when Taft was running for re-election and Wilson was running as the Democrat, Teddy Roosevelt ran not as a Republican, not as a Republican primary candidate, but as a new party founder. It was the Progressive Party. Now, he called it the Bull Moose Party, but make no mistake, he formed the Progressive Party, the first uh, signs of the early American progressive movement. Teddy Roosevelt was the founder of this movement, especially the founder of the party, (laughs) and what that looked like was um, a a party that was formed in the likeliness of his own image that's why he called it the bull moose party because that's that's what he he thought of himself he was this great hunter he was this badass he was this larger than life egotistical personality um, but make no mistake that these the policies on the platform of the Progressive Party or the bull moose party, sounds very similar to what the modern-day Democratic Party might have in their platform, with policies like universal health care, the income tax, um, the inheritance tax, uh, which is the modern-day estate tax, and minimum wage. These are all policies that began not with not with a Democrat. It did not begin with Lyndon Johnson or uh, FDR or uh, Woodrow Wilson. It began with, a uh, originally, a Republican um, who left that party to start his own party because of how wildly progressive and how wildly big government he was. And while he did not win in 1912, many of these policies were seen uh, and, and did come to realization as the natural... Uh, progressive successor of his ideology even though they hated each other. This was the natural successor uh, for making these progressive ideas a reality when Woodrow Wilson became president and made many of these things, especially when it comes to uh, the income tax and and, uh, many other things, a reality. And it followed in line uh, many years after with the likes of Franklin Roosevelt with the likes of um, LBJ and Nixon and Bush and Obama. And now we're here with Trump. And, And I think many, many of Trump's qualities very much resemble Theodore Roosevelt's qualities. So what is the overall conclusion to this? Well, first of all, it should be noted that t- Teddy Roosevelt was a great many things. He was a tough guy. He was larger than life. He, his, his personality was enormous. His ego was even bigger. He was a badass. That can't be denied. I mean, he he, he took a bullet for Pete's sake and finished his speech at, at the, at the um, uh, Progressive Party Convention that we had just talked about. He, and he was a reformer. But what was he not? Teddy Roosevelt was many things, but he was not a small government conservative. And small government conservatives should not point to, to Theodore Roosevelt as an icon or a hero of theirs. You can agree with some of the things that we outlined here in this episode uh, that Teddy Roosevelt did. I really don't care if you agree with it or not. What I do care about is that you at least acknowledge... Um, the fact that Teddy Roosevelt was not in favor of small governments. He did not support free markets He did not support capitalism. He did not support Limited government. He expanded the power of the executive. He expanded the power of the federal branch He ex- or uh, the the federal government. He stopped on states uh, state powers, which is something we had to skip over for uh, the sake of time but we will be going into in our environment episode in, uh, in our section with National Parks. He did not believe in the power of the individual. He thought people were too um, irresponsible to be trusted with their own property, with their own money, so he thought that he was better uh, to control that property than the people who owned it. You can say a lot of things about him, and many of the things are true. Many of the things you can look at and, and say, say that this guy certainly had these qualities, but you cannot say that he was a small government, constitutionally-minded uh, conservative, because that he was not. That is our episode. <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, that was our episode for today. Um, I very much enjoy doing, doing things like this where we can take down and break down history because, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I, I thoroughly enjoy talking about uh, presidents because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about many American presidents. I think Teddy Roosevelt was the one that people across party lines would have misconceptions about. Um, And I wanted to make sure that his legacy was seen completely uh, for what it is, completely transparent for what it is, and that is a massive government progressive. If you don't like Franklin Roosevelt, if you don't like Woodrow Wilson, if you don't like Barack Obama, if you don't like George W. Bush, there is no reason whatsoever why uh, Teddy Roosevelt should be at the top of your list for presidents. So that is our episode today. We had a lot. I would like to do more of these. I, I kind of want to do um, one on Lincoln soon. I want to, we'll be doing this every year that President's Day comes around, but we might be doing some filler episodes where we get into some other presidents as well. Um, and there's still plenty of things to talk about Teddy Roosevelt in case you're still not convinced yet. Um, so that's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will share this episode with your friends, especially the ones who might see uh, Teddy as sort of an icon because he was a disaster. Uh, certainly he's, he's in my bottom three for, for president's. But next week we are going to be having a very good episode, very different from this week's. Certainly, <laughs> uh, next week we are going to be having an episode uh, on Christianity and libertarianism, and this is going to be kind of a precursor. But I'm going to be having an individual from the the uh, Libertarian Christian Institute on the program to talk about the the consistency between the two ideologies and and how. A lot of people are uh, lack faith in the libertarian movement, and a lot of people within Christianity lack uh, liberty. <laughs> so how can we bridge that gap? Um, and that's also sort of a precursor to another episode we'll be doing closer to around Easter. Um, and then after that, we will be at Liberty Con. I will be flying to Washington, D.C. on uh, February 28th to be at Liberty Con for that weekend. So if you are at Libertycon please uh, come see me, come check me out. I will be there uh, just just hunt me down and um, uh, search for me because I'll, I'll be I'll be walking around the premises. We'll be doing an interview uh, with the CEO of Students for Liberty and I'm very much looking forward to that. So please have a good day off if you have a day off. If not, then just enjoy your Monday for President's Day. Share this episode, if nothing else, with all your friends, all your friends who just love the power of the executive and the cult of personality that is the president, because I love tearing that cult of personality apart. So you would really make me happy if you share this episode. Please also like and subscribe uh to us on itunes and give us a rating and a review so that you will never miss an episode or an update and that way we can know how we are doing um i would really appreciate that because we are growing we have a lot of big plans that we are going to be doing in the very near future uh that i cannot wait to share with you and the best way that you can make those plans a reality is to like and subscribe i don't know why i say like it's 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 not on Facebook, it's on iTunes, but subscribe to us on iTunes, um, and of course, give us a rating and review. Follow me on Twitter, at Caleb Franz. Follow the show on Twitter, at Mill Liberty. And until next week's episode, happy President's Day, everyone, or unhappy President's Day, as the case may be. We'll see you.